presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Welcome to this Idaho Reports special episode on crisis standards of care in Idaho hospitals. I'm Melissa Davlin. Tonight I'm joined by Idaho Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jepson, Dr. Stacy Good, Chief of Staff for Bonner General Hospital in Sandpoint, Jordan Hergett, CEO of Portneuf Medical Center in Pocatello, and Dr. Darren Lee, Emergency Room Physician and Vice President of Medical Affairs for St. Alphonsus in Nampa. On Thursday, President Joe Biden announced a multifaceted approach to reducing new COVID-19 infections, including requiring either vaccination or weekly negative COVID tests from federal employees, healthcare workers at facilities that take Medicare or Medicaid, which is most of them, and employees of private businesses with more than 100 employees. According to the Idaho Department of Labor, there are 781 private employers with more than 100 employees in Idaho, which employ a combined total of 203,000 people. That doesn't include the federal employees affected by the mandate. We'll discuss that more later in the show, but first, earlier this week, the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare announced it had declared crisis standards of care for the overwhelmed hospitals in public health districts one, in two, one and two. In other words, healthcare facilities from Grangeville to the Canadian border. That decision affects 10 hospitals. Director Jepson, thanks so much for joining us. For people who aren't familiar, what is crisis standards of care? Uh, thanks, Melissa, that's a great question. Uh, crisis standards of care really means that um, all of the resources that are available are being, the, the demand for resources at a medical facility are being overrun or overtaxed. Or said differently, in North Idaho, we're seeing uh, such a large number of COVID patients that it's now exceeding the capacity of the healthcare system there to deal with those patients. And, and so, from a logistical standpoint, at a hospital, if you are going to seek care for a heart attack or a car accident, what might you encounter if you go to a hospital that's under the crisis standards of care um, um, designation? Uh, great question, and I'm sure that's one many people are wondering about. Uh, I want to be sure to emphasize that you will still get seen. It, we're not at the place where we're turning people away. But what may happen is you may show up and the ER might be different. Your triage might be outside in a tent or in a lobby as you go into the hospital. Uh, it may take uh, longer to get seen, depending on the severity of what's happening with uh, you or your, your loved one. Uh, it might be the case that you're seen in a non-traditional location, such as a hallway or a conference room. Uh, Maybe the case that the nurses aren't coming by quite as often. So patients aren't being turned away necessarily, but are there cases where maybe mildly or moderately ill people who would otherwise perhaps be admitted for observation are being sent home? You know, generally they're finding some place to uh, house those patients at the hospital. Uh, again, it may be a non-traditional location, um, and it may be in the ER until they're ready to go. Uh, and then they are, uh, hospitals are leveraging quite heavily uh, telehealth and monitor at home for patients that are at a lower acuity. What has the state done to help these hospitals that are under this designation? Uh, they've reached out for uh, help uh, some weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and we've done a number of things. We've released additional funds to help them with their, one of their critical shortages is staffing. That's really, the, the, it's, it's their staffing supplies and space. 
and staffing is really where the, the, the shortage is. So we've, uh, uh, under the governor's order, we've released um, uh, money to help them with staffing. We've worked with uh, the National Guard. The National Guard has been activated and we'll be deploying them out. Uh, we worked with our federal partners and up in Kootenai actually, the Department of Defense has deployed one of their medical teams. Uh, we're very fortunate to have one of those. There's very few of them available. Uh, and then we've worked with FEMA to find a contractor who's bringing in additional resources to help them out. Two weeks ago, the governor announced that he was uh, uh, releasing funds to set up three monoclonal antibody uh, treatment centers around the state, including one in Coeur d'Alene um, by Kootenai Health. What's the status on that? Uh, yes, that one is coming together well. Um, it's actually being put together through uh, a partnership of three providers up there, and uh, they're on track to be open next week. So we're quite excited about that. Uh, and I want to do emphasize that monoclonal uh, is not a replacement for vaccination, uh, but if somebody is tested positive and early in that, uh, early in their course of their COVID disease, it's a great treatment that can prevent hospitalization. An early intervention, but not as early as a vaccination. Vaccination is much better. The vaccination's like a seatbelt, the monoclonal's like an airbag, so. Uh, back to the conversation about crisis standards of care. Did the committee, did the department consider declaring crisis standards of care statewide? Uh, yes, that was an active conversation. Of, uh, we had a request from Kootenai Health to activate, and we had a lengthy debate about should that be a regional declaration or a statewide declaration. Uh, there was lots of uh, conversation about that, and ultimately, with the data we had in front of us and the input of those that operate those healthcare facilities, uh, including one of our guests tonight, uh, it was decided that at the moment, it really was appropriate for North Idaho. Uh, and although we're very stressed in the rest of the state, we weren't quite to crisis standards of care. You say we're very stressed in the rest of the state. How close are we to seeing crisis standards of care in southern Idaho, in southeast Idaho? You know, I, I think we're, well, the phrase I've been using is dangerously close. Uh, if you look on the data that we track uh, daily on our website, um, the number of hospitalizations and the number of people in the ICU continues to go up. Um, the hospitals continue to pull levers to expand and convert uh, other areas of the hospital to ICU to expand for uh, for patients that need to be seen there, uh, but it's dangerously close. You know, one of the biggest issues facing hospitals, of course, is the staffing shortage, and this has existed long before COVID, but with more patients, it's exacerbated by that. You know, the state has asked for civilians to volunteer through the Medical Reserve Corps. What's the status on that, and have any of them been called up to serve? Um, it's a great question. So if you're interested in volunteering, either medical or not, you can go to volunteeridaho.com or volunteeridaho.org. Uh, but that's the, where the State Medical Reserve Corps is housed. It's actually run, uh, the, the actual mechanics of it's run by the public health districts. Uh, but we've actually seen an increase in the number of people volunteering on that website, and the public health districts are working with the hospitals to get those volunteers placed where they're needed. Can you give us an update on the statewide picture for case rates and infections right now? Sure. Uh, you know, our case rates are increasing at the most rapid rate we've ever seen through the entire pandemic. We haven't actually hit the highest number of cases per day that we saw back in the, in the winter, but the rate of increase is increasing pretty dramatically. Uh, of particular concern to us is the highest increase in case cases is occurring among children, actually. Uh, we're not seeing an increase in hospitalization in children, but we're seeing a lot more cases. And then in the hospitals, we're seeing a dramatic increase in the number of hospitalizations, much faster uh, than we saw last winter. And we are at record level highs for hospitalizations, ICU, and ventilation usage across the state. 
You mentioned that children represent a, a significant proportion of the new cases that are being recorded every single day. But as you said, not a lot of them are being hospitalized. Some are. Mm -hmm. And we've been very fortunate in that Idaho has recorded no juvenile deaths um, throughout the pandemic. How concerned should the state be when children aren't ending up in the hospital en masse? Um, well, I think it's pretty important for a couple reasons because this is still a pretty severe disease and can have long-lasting effects even for children. Uh, but the other reason is that kids, we don't have a vaccine for kids that are under 12 that's approved, and so they have no protection. Uh, so it has a, a risk of spreading very quickly among them. And they bring it home, and it's those vulnerable people. And we're seeing younger and younger adults going to the hospital. Uh, and that's the, the, the other risk is they infect those in their family or their loved ones. You know, the department has a great data dashboard on hospitalizations and case rates and, and deaths and hospitalizations. I've been keeping a close eye on that throughout the pandemic, and we're seeing more deaths and hospitalizations in people in their 30s and 40s and, and 50s, even in their 20s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the majority are still in people older than 60, but, but why are we seeing younger people with Delta be, be hospitalized at a higher rate than before? You know, I don't know if we know the precise science answer to that, but it's definitely what we see. And if, as I talk to uh, my colleagues that are physicians at these hospitals, they are noting that it's younger and younger people that are landing there, uh, and uh, often with very severe disease. And so we don't know exactly why the Delta variant is driving that, but we do know that that's actually happening. Uh, it's very heartbreaking to see that, actually, very heartbreaking. Dr. Good, I want to bring you into the conversation. Uh, you are at Bonner General Health right now. Uh, can you give us a snapshot? How are things at your facility? Um, so thanks for having me. So I'm also one of the ER docs. There, it's, it's pretty difficult right now. We've been in the state, kind of that Kootenai's been in, but a little bit differently. So Kootenai is having tons of patients right now uh, with COVID. We have a lot as well, but the difference is, is we don't have specialty care. So we're a rural 25 bed hospital. 21 of those beds are um, usable. Um, the other ones are for OB and we have four ICU beds. We have one hospitalist who runs all the beds to include the four ICU beds and we don't have cardiology subspecialty care. We don't have neurosurgery. We don't have trauma surgery. So for us, we're able to manage right now our inpatient COVID status census, but what we're not able to manage is getting people specialty care they need. Specifically, our biggest one we're having issues with is dialysis patients. We can't do dialysis as inpatient. So our number one transfer center was CUNY. Um, Secondly, it was Sacred Heart and we're unable to uh, transfer. So that process and taking care of patients that um, are complex and need specialty care is our number one um, challenge right now. So, so normally if, if you had a patient who lived in say Laclede and they needed dialysis or a higher level of care, you'd normally transfer them to either Sacred Heart or Kootenai. Where are they going now? Um, it is a long process. We end up calling, we've called up to six states and 30 to 40 hospitals to try to find a bed uh, for patients. And they've gone as far as Wyoming. 
Um, for a while, we were able to transfer patients to Kalispell in Montana. What ends up happening is we put them on wait lists everywhere. And um, eventually they get a bed, eventually we get a call and we just continue calling and managing them in the ER, sometimes getting our hospitals on board um, if they're super complex, but they stay with us until we get them in somewhere. And basically there's a wait list in every hospital and you just get them on the wait list and they slowly move up. When we're talking about that wait list, have you seen any adverse effects from patients who are having to wait on that wait list for care? Are, are you seeing worse outcomes? Have you seen patients even die because they weren't able to get immediate care? Yes. How often is that happening now? Um, relatively frequently. We know that Kootenai has received additional medical staff from the Department of Defense from the state. Have you seen any relief ripple effects from that additional support? Um, not quite yet. I mean, Kootenai just, you know, we just was instituted on Monday. Um, we haven't, our, we're, we're at a point where we are not at the crisis level that they are at. So we have not, um, we haven't really seen any effects as far as, I mean, most of what we get from Kootenai is consults and transfer care, and we haven't been able to do that yet, but I anticipate hopefully we will. We are still seeing cases rise, as you know. We're not seeing hospitalizations go down. As you look out for the next four or five weeks, what is your staff doing to prepare for what most people are anticipating is going to be a continued onslaught of patients needing care? Yeah, that's a good question. And I kind of want to back up by saying that we would be where Kootenai was, is at right now from a critical access hospital standpoint, not because of anything they're doing different, but we put proactive measures in place early. We had an incident command that has been meeting for over a year, um, weekly to monthly. And early on from an ER standpoint, we contacted the medical specialty stores in town and spoke to the owners and were able to access oxygen early. So we've been able to send patients home a lot earlier on oxygen that normally would have to be admitted. And if we hadn't set up specifically that one piece of care, we would be overburdened right now with patients um, with COVID in, in house. So um, our biggest issue right now is supply of oxygen because we can't send patients home on oxygen, they have to come in. If we don't have beds, what do we do? And our second biggest issue is staffing. We're a critical access hospital. So we're always a little bit understaffed, even in the best of times. And then you add a pandemic and you add in burnout and people getting sick among other things. And we're just understaffed on every level. And, and to be clear, you know, a lot of people online in, in comments have been asking, you know, why do hospitals have a vaccination mandate if it's gonna exacerbate staffing concerns? As of now, Bonner General Health doesn't have a vaccine mandate, correct? Correct. Um, how's your staff holding up? Um, they're tired, they're burned out, they're fatigued, um, they're overwhelmed. We have 
a lot of staff that are very loyal to our community and to our hospital and everybody's feeling it. And it's because where's the end and how long can you go? And unfortunately, we're not always, staff aren't treated well. Uh, you feel like you're just, you're doing things and nobody's listening and they're coming to see you. So the staff is, is struggling. Thank you so much, Dr. Good. Dr. Lee, I wanna bring you into the conversation. You are at St. Alphonsus in Nampa. What's the current situation at your hospital? Well, uh, thank you, Melissa, for having me on. Um, it's rough. Um, I would echo what Dr. Good says. Um, our hospital is a little bit bigger and has more resources, thankfully. Um, but in the emergency department, um, we're full all the time. We are holding patients in the emergency department that don't have a bed. And again, we have system resources that go across St. Alphonsus. But despite that, we're still not able to transfer even within our own system. We're not able to get patients admitted to the ICU or to the floors because we just don't have beds. So, you know, right now, about a third of our beds are taken up by COVID patients in the hospital, but 70% of our ICU is COVID patients. Those are the critically ill patients that are um, taking up most of the beds in the ICU. So that, that resource right there is probably the most um, sought after and most difficult to find at this point in time. So those patients end up staying in the emergency department uh, and being cared for in the emergency department, which, um, is not the best care for them uh, at the time. There's a lot of other people that are coming in and out. The nurses are not at the same ratio. So it's, uh, it's difficult and um, it does not look like it's any better. Uh, normally San Alphonsus would be one of the places where smaller hospitals would transfer their patients if they were in, in need of uh, higher levels of care. Where are they sending patients now? Um, that's a good question. I don't know where everybody is sending patients now. We, um, you know, we get requests all the time at St. Alphonsus to accept patients, and sometimes we're able to accommodate those. You know, we have um, three hospitals within our system with ICU, actually four with ICU beds, and that includes Ontario. And so sometimes we're able to manage those resources, but a lot of times we just do not have the ability to accept patients from outside. And you have to remember that as a as our main hospital in Boise is a trauma center and the uh, only level two trauma center in the area, we have to remain open for that as well. There is no other place for, for trauma care to go. Um, so that specifically takes up a lot of ICU beds in that critical care resource. So right now we do not have a capacity to take a lot of patients from other parts of the state, although we do get requests um, daily. You know, I, I'm curious about the cost of treating critically ill patients. You know, we, we know that the vaccine is widely available. It is free. Um, you can walk to most pharmacies and get it. If somebody needs a high level of care in the ICU, and we know that some ICU patients are there for weeks with COVID, what kind of cost is that to the patient and to the hospital and to the system? Um, I don't know the exact number to that, but I think anybody who is watching can understand that a three-week stay in the ICU in a hospital, no matter where you're at, is very expensive. Um, it is very expensive. It's also very um, labor-intensive. Uh, most of those patients that end up in the ICU are on ventilators. They require a single nurse 
to take care of that patient at all times. And so you're using a lot of resources to take care of that patient. So in terms of cost, monetary cost, it's astronomical. Um, I don't know the number, but I think we can all guess that three weeks in an intensive care unit is very expensive. And that's the other part of it is the vaccine is free and the vaccine keeps people out of the ICU. Um, there are still people who get breakthrough infections. We know that, um, and that will happen. But those patients are not going to the ICU. They're not getting put on ventilators. They're not staying in the hospital for three weeks. Um, they're usually there for a few days if they end up in the hospital at all. Uh, most of those patients can go home if they have the vaccine. And so the difference between this has become quite clear in the emergency department when you see patients. And it doesn't matter if they're an elderly patient with you know, maybe a bad lung disease. Yeah, they may need a little bit of oxygen if they're vaccinated, but if they were that same patient without the vaccine, um, they're going to be spending three, three weeks in the ICU and most likely never leaving. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. Jordan, I, I know that Eastern Idaho hasn't seen the same surge lately as North Idaho and the Treasure Valley right now, but what are you doing to prepare for a potential surge on this level? Yeah, thank you for having me, Melissa. And um, I, I just want to start and echo what Dr. Good and Dr. Lee have said about um, our healthcare workers in the state, uh, Portland Medical Center across the state. Um, they've showed up uh, heroically on a daily basis, 24-7, uh, to be there uh, when we all need health care. And so uh, we just want to recognize the physicians, the staff, uh, and everyone who has shown up under these trying circumstances. Um, we're, we're, in, we're in a little bit better shape, as you mentioned, uh, on the southeast side of the state. Uh, but we're always monitoring it and preparing uh, for a potential surge. And we're doing a lot of the things Director Jefferson said, uh, as well as what the other facilities have said, which is uh, we might plan for an alternate care space or um, we might plan, uh, we're definitely staffing up. We're trying to get as many resources uh, that, that we can as possible. And so we're constantly monitoring the situation. I think one of the things that's been incredibly helpful, uh, which I wanna recognize Director Jefferson and his team for, is that we have a daily uh, uh, phone call uh, with all the hospitals across the state. So we're aware of, of what capacity and, and transfer capabilities are out there. And I think that's been extremely helpful. Are you worried about hitting crisis standards of care in your part of the state soon? Um, and, and how close might that be? Um, good question. I think where we stand today uh, we happen to have 27 COVID patients in, in the hospital at Portneuf. Uh, we're a 205 bed licensed bed facility. Um, so that's about where we were uh, at the height of the pandemic, maybe a little bit less. Um, so if trends continue uh, where we are, I don't anticipate that we would request crisis standards of care. Um, but uh, unless something dramatic happens, uh, of course, uh, but we're, we're, we're constantly monitoring that. Are you accepting transfers from other parts of the state that are hit harder than you are? Yes, absolutely. That, that daily call is, is kind of a gateway for that, but um, we've accepted patients from as far as uh, Kootenai Health. Uh, most of our transfers, of course, are regional. We have about 12 critical access hospitals in Southeast Idaho, but um, we have, we have uh, helped out and, and vice versa. Um, uh, hospitals across the state have helped us as well. Uh, Director Jepson, earlier in the show, we talked about the mandates uh, that were announced today from the Biden administration. They're not in place yet. Uh, it sounds like they are still being crafted um, and there's gonna be 
some time after they get into place for workers to you know, decide whether or not they are going to get vaccinated. Um, has the state received any guidance on this or did you get a heads up that it was coming? Um, great question, Melissa. Um, so we basically found out the same as everyone else in the country. We, we had about a, an hour's heads up, I think, earlier about this afternoon that that was coming. And at this point, we really don't have anything specific from either the agencies or, or even an executive order that we can look at to see what's, what's implied in that. There's quite a bit there. Uh, we anticipate quite a bit of guidance coming down the road here, and we'll have to sort through it. Um, is there concern that more healthcare workers will quit if that remains in place um, and survives what I imagine are um, almost certain court challenges? Um, it, it, might that exacerbate the staffing shortages that hospitals are already facing? I certainly hope not. One of our critical shortages is staff. Um, for the hospitals that have already instituted a requirement for vaccination, they're reporting that they have not seen a significant drop in staffing. Uh, but we'll see if, if this kind of system statewide, not countrywide really, requirement, if that has an impact or not. Yeah, and this politicizes an issue, to be blunt, that public health officials have been trying so hard not to politicize. Um, but, but why should people still choose to get vaccinated? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and we've heard many of those reasons here tonight. But the first is, is it is by far and away the best protection against getting COVID. Uh, and even if you have a breakthrough case, as you heard Dr. Lee mention, uh, the probability, it, it's very effective at keeping you out of the hospital and protecting you from an ICU visit or even death. Uh, the number of breakthrough cases in the state is 0.53%, less than 1%. Uh, and when we look at the hospitalizations, particularly the ICU, you know, roughly 90% of those are from unvaccinated individuals. Um, and uh, it's, it's happening with younger and younger people. Uh, and so the very best thing we can do to protect yourself uh, is to get vaccinated. It's been proven to highly, highly prevent you from getting into the hospital. Uh, and it also is the best way we can return to a normal hospital capacity. Dr. Good, I want to touch base with you one more time. You know, you, as you know, you have particularly low vaccination rates in North Idaho. With crisis standards of care, with the hospital crisis you're seeing, are people starting to be more open to getting vaccinated? And is there any messaging that you found works? I maybe a little, but not much at all. It's, it's really political up here. Um, and we also fight, there is a large population up here that believes COVID still doesn't exist. And I will diagnose patients with COVID, family members will die of COVID, and they'll still argue with me and say that it doesn't exist. So um, there is not much of a change up here. Honestly, that's one of the biggest battles we're fighting right now with this. It, if you could say anything to people who still don't believe that this is a crisis, what would you say to them? Um, there's no reason we would make this up. I don't wish this upon anyone. I'd give anything to go back to why I became an ER doctor and, and the patients that I, I treat. Um, and I think everybody feels that way. And we have a way to, to help mitigate this and get it under control. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to all of our guests. I know how busy all of you are and we really appreciate you joining us tonight. And thank you so much for watching. The 50th season of Idaho Reports begins October 29th on Idaho Public Television. In the meantime, we'll continue our COVID-19 and Idaho political coverage online. 
Make sure you follow Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter for the latest and subscribe to our weekly newsletter for a roundup of our reporting. You'll find the link to sign up at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.